<laughs> we're still only looking at you, but maybe magically you'll we'll also be looking at you. I was going to say it's like yeah. All right. Can she you can. I'm saying the audience can see her. Marion, can we, you say some words, please? Say more words. Um, I am in Ireland, and I wish I were in Philadelphia, except it's really hot there, I understand. So oh. it's nice and cold where I am. Understatement. Yeah. Marion is in so that was 67 degree weather right now. But, but Celsius. Right now, it's 67 degrees Celsius. Exciting. It's very hot. <laughs> it's very, very hot when it's 67 degrees Celsius. Okay. Exactly. Or centigrade. Sorry. It's a centigrade. It's 114 real field. Hmm. Right what is now. the 58? I know. We don't even need to know these numbers. Anymore. If it's 103, this is what 103 feels like. How does it feel like 109? Mouthfeel. <laughs> Mouthfeel. Hello, hello. Okay. Okay. Are we good now? Are we ready to go? All right. All right. Okay. Hello, and welcome to the Paint and Bright Quarterly Slush Pile. Yay! Woo! Woo you know that I am the one that's always so super excited when we do anything new. I'm always looking for new guests and new things and new environments. And gosh, we've got it all today because this is our first ever live recording. Woo! Yes. It's always live. We just don't have a live audience. Oh, uh, wait. It's not live. It's not live. We have a live audience. It's not live. And that's exciting. We have a live audience. We have a special guest. Marion is usually in Abu Dhabi, but she's in Cork. And we have uh, people in the room. And so it's it's very, very exciting to be here. And thank you for having us. This is part of the Philadelphia Podfest, which uh, we will be releasing this episode on Wednesday of this week, which is what, July 25th or something like that. So there will still be lots of time for people to go check the schedule uh, because this uh, event is happening through the 28th. So uh, Philadelphia Podcast, thank you for having us at National Liberty Museum. Thank you for letting us be in your beautiful space. I feel very free here. Do you? I do, because it's the National Liberty Museum. Well, you should. Free to, free to read poetry, free to write poetry, um, free to practice democracy, free to play on your iPhone, all of those things. So I think that we should start the way that we normally do, which is with me doing what I just did, babbling on and on incoherently, and then finally continuing to keep the mic and saying, I am Kathleen Volkmiller. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Welcome, Slushies in the room, slushies that are listening. And um, on my immediate, my farther left is Jason Schneiderman, who's part of the regular crew. And and I have, I can't tell you where I am because I'm here at the National Liberty Museum. The fact that I am not coming in remotely through Zoom. I don't know, like, what do I say now? I'm here. I drove in my <laughs> tiny Honda Fit. Which is I have yellow. a yellow, right, right. <laughs> the, the yellow Parsons table has been replaced by a tiny yellow car. Yes. Is this car talk for poets? <laughs> like, yeah. Everything's on. Awesome. We'll discuss that. Okay. Shine right in there. I'm Laura McCullough. I also am physically in uh, Philadelphia and also drove in in a little blue Honda. Honda is our sponsor today. We <laughs> Don't we wish? Don't we wish? Yeah. And on my right is. I'm Tim Fitz, and I'm a short story writer, and I took the subway here. Wow. Good. Like public transportation. Mm -hmm. How is public transportation when it's 114 degrees outside? It feels like about 90 <laughs> uh, downstairs. <laughs> well, that's good. You got that's a little respite bad. from the yeah. heat. I love it. And who's on your right? Hi, it's Joe. Um, I'm neither uh, part of uh, the world of poetry or part of the editorial board, but I am usually the sound guy, and they've invited me to be on stage this time, so I hope I can live up to all of your wonderful prowess. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, we, uh, Joe, if you listen, uh, loyal slushies know, Joe is an integral part of the show. Not only is he our invaluable sound engineer, but, um, and so he like inserts the right sounds at the right times and songs and, 
sheeps and things. He also chimes right in on the poetry yeah. very frequently, and um, and he's an integral part of what we do. So, yay, Jose. Thanks. Um, so we thought that uh, since this is different, that would take a minute or two. Oh my goodness, Cork, Cork, Ireland. <laughs> And haunting you from afar. I am so, so far. Sorry. So through, sorry. The, through the skills of Joe Zhang. Um, hi, everybody. It's Marion. And I can't believe I get to, to, to listen in on this, this fun, uh, sweaty festivities um, there in Philadelphia. Uh, I'm calling in from Cork. And I'm, I've got a, a tea in one hand and a whiskey in the other. And Woo. I can't wait to start talking about poetry with you all. So let's get it going. <laughs> Perfect. So sorry about that, Mary. On the laptop is Marion Wren, who's uh, been co-editor with me for a million years. And she's got whiskey and we got nothing? We I got did nothing. not bring whiskey. Okay. Yeah, I should. That would, I... that would have been a good idea. Okay, next time. It makes everything better. Yeah, they'll do this podcast next year, I'm sure. I'm sure this is the second year for this. Oh. Or maybe the third. I'm not sure. Is it third year? Seventh. Seven. It is the seventh, seventh annual and, um, Philadelphia just podcast everything festival. That I say. Are you a good yeah. editor? Are you a good editor? Is Joe? Um, uh, we thought that we would take a minute or two to be reflective and talk about uh, how this came to be, what it's meant. Uh, we've been doing this, which is the uh, Slush Pile podcast, since March 27th of 2016. Wow. How about that? That's, that's a long time. Who knew that time would fly this fast? Um, so in that time, uh, being the person of record here, I guess I will I will say all of these episodes, we've only had two people say, no, we can't have we can't discuss their poems. So how it works is people submit their poetry to us and all of us editors are reading in the slush pile. And uh, on occasion, we find a work that we go, gosh, that would be a great conversation. And we write the authors another time and say, hey, can we talk about you on our show? And they go, holy shit, mother of God, that's scary. Yes. Right. So so that's what happens most of the time. Well, and I, I want to say that part of what happened with the podcast was that Painting Pride Quarterly has always been kind of riding an edge of technology, right? Like everyone's been riding an edge of technology. Um, people who may not know how I got involved with Painted Bride is that in 2000, yeah, I was in 2000. Um, I was a graphic designer at the National Arts Club and I was doing book design and Painted Bride Quarterly had gone completely online and um, Marion and Kathy were dissatisfied with the only online presence and had decided to create a print and an online presence. And for a while, we actually, in the early 2000s, when there was still a real stigma to things that were online, um, they still really didn't count in the same way that they do now. I mean, now it's like, if it's not online, it didn't happen. Um, back then it was like, oh, uh, uh, any, uh, you're just like sticking stuff on a bulletin board. That's not real. Um, and so, you know, we were, we were on the edge of that and everything was online and in print. And that was unique for a while. I think there other magazines that do it now. And one of the things that's happened is as, you know, we've been on Submittable since it was Submishmash and we've right. been getting those electronic submissions. But over time, um, one, the stigma against simultaneous submission went away. So if you were submitting in the 1990s, you were not supposed to send your poems to the same two journals at any given moment. Now people just, it's like a Gatlin gun, right? Like I just sent my poem to 15 magazines on Submittable. And um, for us, like that gets really over overwhelming because we have this editorial process where we're giving things a lot of time. They're going through multiple readers. And um, we were kind of having this problem with this technology where it was making us our our um, editorial commitments were kind of making us a little slow because of the ways the technology had sped things up. Yeah. And the podcast became a way 
um, at talking about a new technology. And I will say I was sent to a podcasting class in t- 2014. Uh-huh. And I was like, this is terrible. Like this, this is not catching on. <laughs> what a bad idea. I was like, podcaster, <laughs> that is spitting in the wind. Like I no. like I'll get a radio show or I'll get nothing. This is, this is a terrible idea. But as podcasting caught on, like this is, this is us kind of like reemerging with a new technology to kind of talk about how that process is working and where our values are. And I, I apologize for like a very long technological, um, digression, but I think that's a really important piece of like kind of how we got to where we are now, both with the journal and with the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Marion, I'm going to grab this for a minute, but I know that you're going to chime in. You know, I think it's interesting. I'm going to sound self-serving as I try to talk about how much we care about the authors, but the reason why we kept a print annual when we went online was for the exact reason that Jason said, so that it would air quote count for authors, because back then, if you published in an online magazine, it didn't count. So we wanted to still make the book uh, to, to allow our authors to celebrate twice. We still use that language all the time. They get the one celebration when it's online. They can share it immediately, all that immediate gratification. And then, you know, the funnest thing we do is have the book ready at AWP and have people come over and hand them the book in, the, in which they are. And people love it. And then um, the... One of the uh, reasons that we started the podcast is that Marion and I talk and talk and talk and all the time and Jason all the time about how it takes us long to get back. It takes us long to get back to others because we have a democratic auditorial policy. So we're having all these crazy things of like, how do we tell people? How do we tell people? And then um, the collective person that is between Marion and I is Karen. So this voice, Karen said, (laughs) make a podcast, (laughs) lift the veil, show them instead of just saying, well, we have a democratic policy. Show them what we do. And that's what this podcast has been about. Right, Mayor? Amen, sister. So the only thing I would add to that is... um, it's in retrospect, right, to, to sort of nerd this up a little bit. It's a straight up ecological approach between the print annual, the web presence, the podcast presence. We're democratizing all of these different forms of, of, of expressive work and editorial work. Um, so that, and then I love this notion, right? When we think about the podcast, it is about pulling the veil back and exposing the work that goes into, um, the, the thing that we love to do, which is editing paint bright quarterly and getting people's voices out in the world heard through multiple different media forms. So three cheers for PBQ and thank you to everyone who's in the audience that I can't see. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for all of that. So we do keep talking about authors here. We're hitting on authors. Um, let's see if there's anything that uh, anybody wants to add, though, about what this editorial has. Has the podcast changed the way you read in any way? Anybody? It doesn't so. change how I read, but it changes how I think about editing, because when I usually read, I mean, I always read by feel. I don't really care about any other way to read, but still I wonder sometimes about the uh, validity of my choices. So when I'm forced to talk about Hmm. my decisions, then Hmm. I get feedback from uh, usually Jason. (laughs) Uh, But often- In in the form of yelling. (laughs) Jason tells me when he disagrees with me and Marion tells me when she agrees with me. no, but they, they forced me to, to consider these decisions and try to find out what the concrete decisions are beneath the hunch. Um, and it helps me to define uh, the way I think and, and how I approach writing, too, because I start, you know, you don't you don't know how you think about your editorial process and your reading process. And when you're writing stories, especially, usually you're in the hole working on your work. And you don't really want to bother yourself with too much of the outside world. But then the problem with that is it gets a little bit isolating. So when you come, you come into the uh, situation where you're being recorded and you want to say something insightful, but you don't want to force it. And then you get that immediate feedback. It starts to, you know, shape the way you think and, and not really self edit, but just 
get to know yourself mm-hmm. a little bit better. Well, if I if I could just jump in, I'm just so excited to hear everything all of you are saying. I haven't done the editorial process on your side of the table here with Painted Bride Quarterly, but I've certainly been an editor elsewhere and done the sitting around a room, reading manuscripts and so forth. And I loved what you just said, Tim, because there's something that happens with our own muscle memory as writers that doesn't get articulated when we're doing it alone. But when you have to talk it out and you have to justify why you think a line works or doesn't work or a poem or a short story is achieving its aspirations or not, it causes you to move out of that muscle memory and actually be able to articulate what it is you're thinking and why you're thinking it. And then I actually think that that brings it more conscious for us as individuals, too. Mm-hmm. And in terms mm-hmm. of the whole history of the um, online journal you know, it, it, I love that you're saying democratic, but I also think it broadens the audience mm-hmm. and, and by having both. Yeah. So that you're targeting um, people who might not find a print or the folks who are finding print might, might not be reading online and it widens mm-hmm. your audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Never thought about that quite so much. So, Joe, do you have any like general comments on what it's been like for you to bear witness and add to our shenanigans and all of the things that it means as sound engineer? Um, I've learned that uh, when you submit to a literary magazine, um, you are going to be scrutinized by some wonderful people that have your best interests in mind that do not really um, want to shut you down in any way. Um, They want to be a gate opener, not a gatekeeper. Um, Mm. And uh, I've just had a lot of fun. (laughs) Oh, that's good. I'm glad. Because we have a lot of fun with you. Um, okay, we're done. I think that we have been talking about the authors and, you know, we invited Laura here because we miss her and wanted to see her beautiful face, but also because she was actually uh, one of the poets whose work uh, got discussed on an episode. Ooh, and you were early in the games. Yeah. Yeah. What, what did we say? Episode 11? Episode 10, 11? Sorry. No, just no. something to Yeah, early. Remember. If you go to pbqmag.org and you put McCullough in the search window, you will see that we've also published her, of course, and gratefully. Um, but also you'll be able to link to that podcast. It was definitely early. I think initial double digits. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell us what it was like. What as it was an like. Yeah. Um, well, you know, just a follow up on what you just said, Joe. Um, there, there is a feeling of um, being seriously uh, engaged, right? That when you're with other writers and you're talking about writing, you want to feel that people are trying to understand what uh, techniques or strategies or maneuvers you're bringing to the page, why you might be, uh, what you're aspiring to in the poem. But it, it is a little bit of a daunting concept that you're going to have this discussed. You're going to have someone make a decision right there at the moment of whether or not something's going to get taken or not. But I think that um, that while it takes a little bit of bravery, it means that you're going to have a really great discussion. And I felt we did this particular uh, these particular set of poems were about to come out in a book that was a very complicated book for me, an emotionally difficult book. And I had been trying very hard to find. uh, hinges and fulcrums uh, that I could uh, work the psycho-emotional material over and find kind of aesthetic manifestation that material could reside in. And to be honest with you, I was really doubtful about that collection. And uh, in kind of very much off the top of my head thinking about it in this moment, I really recall at the end of our conversation feeling like maybe these poems could have some agency in the world. And I was given a level of confidence about the work by your serious attention that I don't think I was really feeling at the time. So I, I want to say I was grateful for it. Yay. Thank you. And I also think people don't recognize how important editors are. And and we, a lot of writers, if they haven't done much editorial work, like we all have, think that that is a gatekeeper rather than people who really love the work and are artists, sometimes literally in their own right, but also that edit, 
being an editor and a curator is an artistic process as well. And by you guys making that transparent, I think maybe you're offering to an audience a better understanding of the complexity and the sensitivity that goes into curating a magazine. Well, and I, I have this theory of the workshop that, you know, what we now know is the workshop kind of came into being roughly in the 1930s, the Iowa method, which is that you cannot talk while everyone talks about you, which is exactly the experience that our authors have. And I think it's because I think that this came into being in the 1930s and this moved out of a kind of extracurricular activity that it had been in colleges up until that point and became a kind of discipline within the academy because it mirrored how publication was happening, that there was a difference that was happening in the early part of the 20th century where people were able to just kind of send things blindly to agents and to, um, and to publishers. If you're looking at literary history, you know, going back a little bit further, everyone seems to know each other, right? They're all like kind of talking to each other and trading things around and starting presses. And so in the certain way, I, I mean, I had this theory of the workshop that was created in order to give people the experience that they couldn't have of what the editorial meeting was when they weren't in the room. And now, not quite a hundred years later, um, we're putting you back in the room that, you know, this, this is this is a need that authors have and that we're kind of bringing this back around um, as these institutions have kind of worked to create it and recreate yeah, but, it. But we all know a workshop can be a pretty brutal place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I will also say, I think that that um, editorial, the fact that editorial decisions have become more easily discussed, like in the night in like 1998 or 1999 or 2002, if I got a, a ridiculous rejection letter, like I remember I got one rejection letter that was just it was typed on a typewriter and said, sorry, comma, not these. <laughs> right, you couldn't do that now because someone would just right. post it on Twitter right. and you would kind of have all this backlash. And wow. so I think the fact that we were always kind of a nurturing editorial board huh. um, also kind of led into this and that we were never kind of the editorial board that was like mean. Right. Um, that was dismissive. That was like, you know, why would you? I mean, I have a friend who received a rejection letter that said, this is exactly this, the, the stories you have sent us are exactly what is wrong with American fiction because they're almost good enough to publish, but not quite. Ouch. Ouch. But, you know, also the opposite. I remember very yeah. early on getting a rejection. I won't say who, who it was from, but the rejection said this. This moved us so much, we all cried, and we've taped it over our computers. And then I'm like, what the, <laughs> what else do I have to do, right? But, but, but your process is actually giving what people are always asking for. Why didn't they tell me what they were thinking? What is it that I could have yeah. done better? How could yeah. I be shifting? Right? Yeah. A few times, and this happened very recently, um, on the show, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of put my, I'm smacking Tim on the shoulder right now. Tim reads with pen in hand, and he is constantly dialoguing with the text. Huh. And um, he's always the one that suggests um, large edits and things like that uh, while we're in discussion. And sometimes we will discuss a piece on air and what edits it needs. And the authors will say, you know what? You were right, right. about this or that edit. Because um, they get to hear the whole convo and not... And not just, you know, get rejected right. or get a note saying, yeah. sorry, this is what right. sorry. Was close. Yeah. Right. 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 That was hard. Yeah. No, I actually. But, oh, sorry. The best rejection I ever heard about was a friend of mine who's um, she has two kids and she wrote a children's book and she sent it to an agent who represents children's authors. And the person wrote back, clearly, you have no experience with children. <laughs> I mean, that was the beginning of the rejection letter. <laughs> Clearly, mother of two, you have no experience with children. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Talk about some we, arrogance. Yeah, we're not like that. Yeah. Well, I think this has taken our relationship with authors to another level. Mary, I'm wondering what you think on, on that end. Like, it's now, it's been three years. And so it's kind of amazing when we go to, um, when we go to our audience. So when we're at book fairs and associated writing programs conference and people come up to us and feel like we're already friends just like you know when you watch a tv show and you get close to somebody um they'll hear our voices and know who we are or hear us laughing and know who we are um and the authors who have discussed like want to come meet us in person after hearing the conversation that is just such a gift 
Mayor. Is Mary gone? She's, she's drinking her whiskey and her tea. Oh, um, wow. Maybe she's uh, I, did, I didn't want you to hear me sipping my whiskey. No, it would be <laughs> fine. You sip the whiskey. <laughs> Wait, here, I, I'll see if I can, if I can like slurp my coffee. Okay, I'm slurping. Slurp I'm it. slurping coffee. So that, so that you'll feel better about okay. sipping your whiskey. Perfect. Squeeze the water I bottle. Just, we all I, got something going on. Just I just support. wanted to say, like, I love how it used to be that, you know, we, we took a long time and we still take a long time to respond to our authors, right? It's just a nature of the sort of glacial pace of the work that we do, but it's also because we're paying such careful attention to the work. And so I think that's what's changed. Like when we show up conferences now, it's not like I'm hiding behind the table waiting for somebody to come over and yell at me hmm. um, for having had the work so long, right? That's More true. often than not, people are coming over with arms wide open, not to like throw a punch, but to hug us for sharing the work that we do, right? <laughs> and I guess that's the, that's the, I guess, you know, the, the truth of it for me is like, I am still astounded every time we sit down to have these conversations that we get to do this, that people are willing to send us poems, that we're able to sit down and talk about these poems and, and find the 90 million different ways that excellence, excellence manifests itself. And that feels like, you know, priceless. So. Yeah. And now I'm going to have more whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) Don't age yourself though. We want to hear the chugging. Um, Yeah. That's such an excellent point. I do remember going to readings and being afraid of the poets (laughs) very frequently. And that just doesn't happen anymore. So maybe this, um, you know, making the meetings naked is really working. Uh, (laughs) Their meetings are naked. (laughs) Oh, close to naked sometimes we're taking up it we're in the bathroom episode there are there are many bathrobe episodes I was thinking I might do this with you guys in the fall but I'm not so sure (laughs) well the thing is you could call in from your home and be naked naked from home naked from home (laughs) in a row from home we've done all the things Um, the bathrobe episodes Right. So, so I think what we should do, this is a perfect segue to do what we do. All right. Let's read a poem and talk about it. All right. All right. Yeah. So uh, I voluntold Jason. I love being voluntold. <laughs> uh, this is Madagascar by BJ Ward. Madagascar. When Juanita, my Toyota Corolla, finally died seven years after our divorce, divorce, coughing her last oily rosebud of gray combustion to the gated (laughs) junkyard hanging above all our heads. Her own radio crackled that she'd idle eternally with Buick eights and Studebakers. Then her radio died too. I tooted her horn and surmised her speedometer forever zero miles per hour. Best car I ever had, I said aloud, which might seem ridiculous to an insurance appraiser. Her body was one quarter Bondo, one eighth duct tape, and the rest rust that refused finally to collapse. I got out and kicked the fender. A rusted shard the shape of Madagascar fell the five inches that separated it from the ground for half a million miles. Half a million miles, five inches. Something strange there, I said aloud again, not caring what any risk appraisers might say. What did they know? At our wedding, they all told us how perfect we were together, didn't they? I picked up the oxidized offshoot and brought it to the cloning joint in Princeton. You can do sheep and cats, I said. I want another Juanita. The twin clerks behind the counter replied at the same time, we can try, but let us warn you, with objects of nostalgia, we are likely to replicate smacks of imperfection more than the sublime purity you remember. Three days later, I picked her up. Damn it all, they were right. Imperfections abounded. The seats had no cigarette holes, no fast food sheen on the center console, no character. The perfections as suggested weren't there. Particularly you in the passenger seat. Your long brown hair shimmying to Van Morrison's voice. The rain beginning to keep the beat on the hood, the roof, the as of yet undefiled fender, and the windshield wipers waving before us like arms of the rock concert, like fronds on Palm Sunday, like a gavel that keeps swinging back on the judge who just can't bring himself to decree. And the rain smacked away forever. 
the moment after the moment, we knew it was there right in front of us. We'd have half a million miles. Each day would become a small gift we never picked up. Our hands were already too full, we said. It might be better tomorrow. It never was. And it was. Woo! Thank you, Jason. Bravo, bravo. So often on the show, everybody goes dead quiet Mm -hmm. immediately after a reading. Yeah. And uh, we now uh, lovingly call it the sound of thinking. Yes. Because everybody's looking at the poem and just thinking. When it changes um, your relationship, because we've read them before, and yet hearing it out loud always changes your relationship. Always changes it. And allow me to say at this moment, because this is a regular episode, um, those who are listening, please go to pbqmag.org and you can look at the poem. Uh, We publish them online uh, after we've made the decision when to release the episode and um, as part of the podcast page. So you can read along, read ahead, read after, read before, whatever you would like. So, so this was long for this experience. I was a little concerned about using this one, but yet I found, um, you know, to use all those cliche terms, I thought it was pretty accessible. <laughs> thought it was pretty relatable. <laughs> thought there was a lot of good stuff going on in here and it might make a really good one. So I um, would like to, uh, I don't know, I think it's time to officially deputize the audience. We're going to officially deputize the audience in the spirit of democracy here at the National Liberty Museum. We hereby decree you are- You are free to vote. (laughs) You are paid by quarterly editors for the next 22 minutes. So, chime in on what you think. And you don't have microphones, but you can run up here and grab mine. <laughs> so, so what are we well, thinking? Well, I would, I would definitely like to jump in, and I first have to make a, um, what is it, a self disclosure. So, uh, I'll, I'll, in the literary world, lots of people know each other, and then there's different levels of know each, knowing each other. And when I saw that it was B.J. Ward, I decided really not to read it or think about it ahead of time. I got it, uh, oh, okay. you know, this morning, uh, and to be kind of open to the experience in here. But I want to say from the get-go, he's my literary brother. Uh, We both came up under Stephen Dunn. I know him really well. But it also means, and this is both maybe a positive and and a a caveat, that I know the rhythms. I know the rhetorical uh, and syntactical strategies that he uses. Uh, I get pleased at seeing things that are very quintessentially B.J. Ward. You you know, the sort of reprisals, the half a million miles that returns at the end, the half a million miles again. And, you know, how he's using uh, the Corolla uh, you know, as the objective correlative for the issue of the marriage. So there's a lot of wonderful things that I immediately want to really like while also trying to identify things. And I'm like, huh, not so sure about that. Yeah. So I just wanted to start with that. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And that for that honesty. Now, often, of course, all these years of us doing this, we know a lot of people too. So, um, we do, you know, usually have a rule that your, your vote, um, you abstain if it is your bestie, right? Yeah. But that's also why we have the Democratic editorial policy, yeah. right? Because he's, he's uh, I know him too, but he's yeah. not a literary brother, right? I, I thought we had a um, honor system by which you had to self-recuse if you thought you could be impartial, if you thought you could <laughs> not be impartial. Like yeah. if you know someone and you like this, like really, I think it happens more or it has happened with solicitations where we love the person and a lot of their work, but then the mm-hmm. poem is like, oh, yeah. I need to recuse right. myself because I can't vote no on this poem that I right. love by this person. And that's never happened right. on the air. Right? No, that was more in, no, in the no, individual. No. For all these well, years, um, I mean, Marion so long ago formed the, uh, uh, editorial board in New yeah. York and then Marion has now formed an ed- editorial board in Abu Dhabi so we often use the fact that we have multiple cities as well which I don't think we've talked about that on the show very much yeah. but sometimes one of us will be at a reading and become enamored of a poem that we hear right not even knowing the person but when you're in a room and the whole room is smitten and you know <laughs> sometimes you might walk up to the poet afterwards and go please give me that poem and then we would if the poet agrees we would often send 
extended to another city yeah. so that there would be nothing but objectivity. Right. One of my great accomplishments is that we published the title poem in Wayne Kestenbaum's best-selling Jewish porn films, oh, which yeah. I snagged yeah. following the reading. Huh. There you go. There you go. Well, and we I do want to say that the idea of engaging seriously, there are things I might say about uh, this poem that I would say in, to BJ that sure. I might think are not terribly successful or that require an, an additional level of consideration. And I don't feel I would need to recuse myself. I can be honest about this poem. I don't fully know what I think sisters yet. Sisters can hopefully, so, in the best yeah. cases, sisters are honest with brothers, right? That's what we hope. Here we go. So, but the poem itself. The next thing you know, you're putting the masking cave down the middle of the bedroom. And like, you know, I don't know. I mean, I love my siblings, but... Uh, you know, luckily well, I'm not it, sleeping it in go. any rooms with them, so... I, um, there's, there's a lot to love here. I'm going to start yeah. with love. Yes. I'm going to start with uh, love in that title and how Madagascar relates is that it's a piece of Juanita that has fallen off. Um, uh, I just, I just, I, I started part of this conversation by saying this is two and a third of a page long. Mm -hmm. Doesn't feel like it at all. Each piece speaks to the next piece. You know, I, I move right along. I love what we narrow down to. Um, uh, there's, there's just a lot. To see, my, I had problems with the Madagascar. Do you? I do. Yeah. I'm like, why choose this island? It's where most of the vanilla on the planet comes from, but I'm not sure how that. So I actually was asking questions about that. I only know the shape of Madagascar from playing Risk. <laughs> I mean, I got another Risk board, right? Madagascar <laughs> is an important gateway uh, back and forth between the continents. Madagascar. <laughs> um, this poem annoys me to no end. Uh, not so much the content. Uh, I think it's very well written, but to think about nostalgia and to compare a past relationship to a car, it's sad. Um, like, you should really just... <laughs> nostalgia is a dead end. Like, what do you... Who cares? But I think that's what the poem's about. I mean, I think the poem oh, no, is I know. That's why, nostalgia. That's why it annoys me, but I like yeah. it. Like, okay. it, 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 it makes yeah. me very annoyed because I find myself, and everybody probably finds themselves, clicking on things on the internet about exes or different parts of their life that is like, what am I doing? I, I could be reading. I could be working out. I could be doing anything else as opposed to revisiting something that has ended and a shape of rust reminding you of something. Like, everybody sees reminders of their past all the time. And I, whenever, I, I try not to allow myself to wallow in that mm -hmm. situation too much. Mm -hmm. It just does not seem productive to the human condition. Uh, that's just how I feel. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting that you should say that. It, it makes me want to bring up again the knowing of, of BJ as a poet because the, if any of us know the, like, the ooh and know a lot of the other poems. Part of the reason that I might sidle up more readily to this poem, maybe, than, than you would, is because I know he's got other poems about cars, too. So I know uh, they've shown up and, you know, there's cars about where the speaker is working with their dad on the engine and how that engine is a way for them to communicate with each other. And so I probably end up a little bit more sympathetic to the car right off the bat because of that. I, I really liked the sort of the way that it kind of set you up for the surrealism so that when they're cloning the car, like it's it's very light, like there's no sort of there's almost no setup that like just once they start cloning the car, then he ends up with another one. And I thought that that kind of like, I don't know, James Tatey kind of moment where you just slip into something yeah. totally impossible. is sort of wonderful. Right. It's the informality. Um, I brought it to the cloning joint yeah. in Princeton. Right. Yeah. Right. The tonal juxtaposition. I love it there when too. people can get so close to being stupid that it's not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> The execution is really great. If, he doesn't, if not for that stanza there, then it's ridiculous. But then it's you, he pull, he takes you along for the ride, right? Um, and then it turns out. I mean, I I really enjoy. It seems for me, it seems to be about the impossibility of relationships and the impossibility of grief. Mm -hmm. And the impossibility of seeing 
the beauty of present imperfections in people around us, and probably ourselves too, but, um, and how necessary they are for our character, but for some reason we can't do that in the moment. Yeah, and, he, and you can't recreate it, and so it becomes... But I, I, get, I do get the idea, though, that there's a shift that's taken place in this character, and, mm-hmm. and there, there, is a, there is a point um, in your life where you do start to become more forgiving of things mm. that were once irritating, or you just, you real, or you, 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 you understand how irritating you yourself are. And there, you know, and there's certain things you just kind of give a little bit more. I, I feel like this person in the poem has taken that turn. And, and then it, it turns out to, the poem ends up being a kind of a neo cherry log road. It's huh. like, it's the same setting. It's, you know, decades after those initial flashes of eroticism have worn off. And then you get how, how that, those initial flashes affected him as a person. Without being, and, you know, getting close to being corny at that one, but saving it, but without being sentimental or cheesy about it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that what the, what the replacement car or the clone car does is because the first time, the first times I read it, I was sort of frustrated that the car disappears, that like once he's in the cloned car, it then goes back to being mm-hmm. all about the relationship. Mm-hmm. But I think that as I spend more time with the poem, kind of what I love is that the replacement car, which is not the original, is actually what brings back the memories that are not there and are wrong. That as long as the car is actually still, as long as Juanita's Juanita and is the original object that's falling apart, that is, you know, kind of crumbling to dust, um, he can't actually grieve the relationship. But then once he's in kind of the replacement clone car, Mm -hmm. the car disappears. And then the relationship returns. I thought that was really powerful. Although I would cut... It never was, and it was. I, w- I think I would end with, it might be better tomorrow. Mm. Yeah, that, that's it. Oh, I'm sorry, ahead. I was just gonna say that moment that you're talking about um, when the perfections, as suggested, weren't there, particularly, particularly you. you. right? That's a great moment. What a great key turn, right? Yeah. Uh, so I want to bring up something a little, uh, I, I hope it doesn't sound like nitpicky, but it's so early in the piece. And then I keep waiting to see if it's going to do something. The allusion to Citizen Kane with Rosebud, right? <laughs> what that makes me think of, and I don't know if it made anybody else think of this, is the whole cloning thing. And then having the new good version is not as good as the old version. Isn't that also related to the movie Solaris? And wasn't there even more than one version of that film? Oh, yeah. They remade Solaris. Yeah, but like- right? But it, so I kept thinking, oh, there's going to be another film illusion, or he's, uh, and, it, and that that does <laughs> Rosebud does just hang, yeah. That maybe it brings up, and then it makes me wonder whether it's earned that mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. film illusion. Baron, we don't want to ignore you out there. Jump. No, in. I'm I'm just really glad. I'm I'm glad to hear that Laura just mentioned the Rosebud thing too, because it strikes me that there's like um, he's playing sort of almost like a cinematic juxtaposition of, of images here. Um, and there's a pattern in it. So it feels as if like Rosebud's random, but it also like is the invitation to think cinematically. Um, so here, here's a, for instance, if you jump down to, you know, uh, the shape of Madagascar fell the five inches that separated from the ground for half a million miles, line break space, half a million miles, five inches, that weird, wonderful space strikes me as like an, an interesting kind of like chiastic stitching, right? Cause it's the two pieces huh. sort of repeated, inverted, or just repeated, but something strange is happening with this, like doubleness, repetition, reintroduction of, of images. And so that for me, like the, it's weird when the car comes back, it almost comes back in the beat of windshield wipers, Right. So it's like, you know, swing one way, the windshield wipers are waving before it's like a rock concert or palm fronds or that judge. And then the beat of the windshield wipers drops you down into the end of the poem so much so. Right. That it's like, you know, you, you can't cut. It never was. And it was because it's still the swing and the beat huh. of these windshield wipers sort of like pausing through. Right. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I'm, I'm working hmm. 
I'm working with the poem and it's working on me to stay in this rhythmic imagistic beat, right? This sort of back and forth of not just nostalgia, but ambivalence, like a deep and abiding ambivalence that then gets released right at the end of the poem, right? It might be better tomorrow. It never was. And it was. And... Well, rhythmically, I think that was a really interesting observation, both in terms of uh, what's actually happening and in terms of the sonics. Uh, you know, not wanting to intrude myself into the poem, but I, it really makes me start to even interrogate further the efficacy of the title and uh-huh. thinking that there might be something that, that could push forward the wipers or components of the car more more directly instead of such a distant uh-huh. thing as Madagascar. Well, maybe he's yeah. may, maybe he's just mad at gas car. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that, Joe. You know, I'm with you, man. Right? <laughs> I love I'm with it. you, man. Well, I don't know if we'll ever look at windshield wipers the same again. Hmm. I, I, <laughs> And I mean that in a good way. Smacked away <laughs> forever, right? Mm. It, it, you know, I, I feel like um, hmm. it earned the never was and it was for me. Um, but I actually love that gavel too, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's, um, it's really interesting what you pointed out, how much work those windshield wipers are really doing. And even the hands, hands keep coming up, right? We've got hands going. Um, mm-hmm. When you think of the arms at the rock concert, it's also the hands up. Oh, and then, yeah. Right? Our, mm-hmm. And like small the gifts we never picked up. Our hands mm-hmm. were already too full, we said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're getting close to half to vote, so... Um, I, I, I also really like the way that the um, rhythms of speech kind of spool out. I think that the way that the line is constructed, um, it's not exactly like a four, it's, it's sort of a three to four beat line, but the way that the um, syntax is being cut against by the line, the twin, cur- the, sorry, the twin clerks behind the counter replied at the same time, we can try, but let us warn you, with objects of nostalgia, we are likely to replicate smacks of imperfection more than sublime purity, you oh, remember. Like there's a, nice. the, the way that it's cut against um, the syntax with the line, I think yeah. is really skillfully done. And I think yeah. that's part of how um, the the motion of the poem is able to kind of go from these sorts of very very different places without feeling forced. Mm-hmm. And you also caught for me there. There's so many little places where language is repeated. You know the half million miles, but also the smacks got repeated, which was which was nice. And I'd like to highlight some of the the lines in um, as we go into this last large stanza, both imagistically and in terms of the lines. The seat said no cigarette holes, no fast food sheen on the center console. This wonderful sibilance in those lines too. No character, mm-hmm. the per- mm-hmm. perfections, and again that cuts across the syntax there yeah and it's I don't know I don't know if this is like here or there but there's there's such a sort of Gen X image system from like Van Morrison and Rosebud or or Citizen Kane is kind of like these marks of erudite cultural consumption to like the concerts the Toyota Corolla to the I mean just the obsession with I mean do kids care about duct tape anymore is duct tape like a punchline the way that it was uh-huh. yeah. for oh my God. Are, you know yeah yeah there was a thing. whole duct tape thing with teen, with adolescents like about five six years ago where they made like a lot of stuff out of duct tape yeah people oh. wear prom dresses made of duct tape <laughs> wallets <laughs> they that's do. so millennial yeah okay so yeah. I'm gonna stick with yeah. <laughs> well and, and BJ is someone who uses a lot of pop popular culture references and Americana and, and class issues yeah so um, those of you who are new to us listening in right now or in the room um, we can go on and on and on we can discuss two poems for an hour Um, but time more than our conversation I think we could keep talking about this time is forcing us into a decision y'all so um, anybody um, 
who listens also knows our loyal slushies that we flip thumbs and uh, we do a one, two, three shoot kind of thing with a thumb up and a thumb down. There is no middle ground. And um, audience members, please vote as well. And you can't give like, here's the thing I think. But no, there's nothing. No, nothing. no, this you, is false. You have to, you have to, front, you have to stand behind your convictions. Uh-huh. Yep. You have to say yay or nay. Can you yep. say yay or nay, mm-hmm. but you also think ba, 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 that's no. the discussion. <laughs> the voting is not the discussion. Okay, the discussion gotcha. gets All right. you to right. vote. Already the vote is All right, I'm there. up or down. We're flipping thumbs. You All right. need the courage of your convictions. All right. Okay. All right. So are we ready? Are we ready? And everyone in the audience. Less than we normally talk about at home. But here we go. One, two, two, three, three. vote. Uh, Looks pretty. Do you want to call it? Yeah, Yeah. ladies and gentlemen, it's in. Not only only is it in, it's in. I think this is the largest number. Well, this is the biggest meeting I've been at. With the deputization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think this may, I think he he may also have the distinction of receiving. Thank you. More yes than usually. So we uh, record twice a month and we release twice a month. But this month, this is going to be a bonus episode. And it's coming out on Wednesday. So thank you. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, Jonathan. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Happy anniversary. Thank you for taking the time out of your evening to spend with us. And thank you for being here. And uh, thank you for being here, Laura, and everybody else. And uh, Philly Podcast Festival. Woo-hoo. Keep reading. Yeah. Bye, guys. Scared. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't yeah. know you were going to vote yes. I didn't you know didn't you were going to vote yes. I didn't even know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote yes. I didn't know you were going to vote